Thanks for listening to this Small Town Theologian special. This bonus content comes from other Reformed pastors and theologians in small towns. You may not recognize their names, churches, or towns, but these faithful men have good things to say for your comfort. God's sovereign grace is active in small towns. May hearing from these men encourage you, and may your life be shaped by what you learn. In August of 1635, a massive hurricane struck the Jamestown settlement and Massachusetts Bay Colony. This hurricane, which has come to be known as the Great Colonial Hurricane, also affected what is known today as West Springfield, Massachusetts. Many settlers fled the western side of the Connecticut River to establish Springfield on the higher ground. West Springfield did have good farmland, so some settlers remained. Imagine living in your small town and you were mandated by law to attend town hall and church services. That was the case way back when for West Springfield residents who actually had to cross the river to attend. The day after the battles of Lexington and Concord, Minutemen from West Springfield joined the Revolutionary War. Three armies were encamped in this town. Apparently, several years later, the economic situation in West Springfield wasn't great, which led to an uprising against the government named Shays Rebellion. Don't make armed farmers mad. Farming used to be a big part of the economy in West Springfield, but the Industrial Revolution in the region's many rivers led to a decline in agricultural uh, agriculture and a boost of paper and textile mills. Do you know what a salt box house is? It's a residential house with two stories in the front and one in the back. So the roof slanting down from the peak to the one story in the back would be great for sledding. These houses resemble old salt boxes with slanted lids. 70 Park Street, West Springfield, is the home of the Josiah Day House, likely the oldest brick salt house, uh, salt box house in the country. You can tour it. It's only 1.4 miles from West Springfield Covenant Community Church. I love donuts. I need to watch my figure, folks, but I could eat a lot of donuts. If you're ever in West Springfield, head to 1305 Riverdale Street to Donut Dip, who still makes handmade donuts. It's a family-run business and has been since 1957. They have a really cool old-time black and white photo on their website, DonutDip.com. They say, quote, some of our specialties include our home-cut, old-fashioned sour cream, apple cider, and honey dip, end quote. About 3.6 miles from Donut Dip sits West Springfield Covenant Community Church, pastored by Reverend Rob Hill. Rob and I went to Grove City College together. The church was organized in 1978 with 51 members and has grown through the years. They are a congregation in the Presbyterian Church in America and are contending for the gospel in one of the least religious states in the U.S. Pray for them. But also take a moment to visit westspringfieldchurch.org and listen to some sermons. If you're in the area, join them for worship. Rob is one of the pastors of the West Springfield Covenant Community Church, where he has served over the last seven years. Previously, he served as pastor of Pine Haven Presbyterian Church in Clinton, Mississippi, for 11 years. Rob grew up in western Pennsylvania, attended Grove City College, and received his MDiv from Reform Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Rob's wife, Megan, has authored several books and serves as the managing editor for the Gospel Coalition. Rob and Megan have four children, 
between the ages of 5 and 16. In his spare time, Rob is an avid golfer. Four years ago, he had the privilege of playing Royal Portrush in Northern Ireland. He also loves to watch his kids play sports and roots for Ohio State every chance he gets. Rob considers it the highest privilege in the world that he gets to serve the Church of Jesus Christ. The following sermon is one of uh, one that Rob preached in March of 2021 titled Joy Amidst Trials, a sermon on James 1, 2 through 4. You have gone through trials and may be going through intense trials right now. Rob has an encouraging word for you from James. May Rob's message comfort your heart and increase your confidence in Christ. Let's now hear the word of God um, this morning out of the book of James. Just last Lord's Day, we began a new series of sermons on uh, that New Testament epistle of James. And you'll find the book of James immediately after the book of Hebrews in your New Testament uh, scriptures. Uh, James is a very uh, practical book. James himself was likely the half-brother of our Lord, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, uh, somebody with a real pastor's heart. And that's going to come through uh, even in the verses that we look at today. So uh, our text is going to be James chapter 1. Uh, verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. Let's hear now God's word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The sense just reading in God's word. Let's now look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our uh, God in heaven, we bow in your presence and seek your face once again now as the word of God is proclaimed. Lord, we uh, know that this is not merely uh, the word of man. This is uh, one whom you have set apart to be a preacher of the gospel, proclaiming to your people these words of everlasting life. And so we plead now that the presence of your Holy Spirit would be with us, applying this word into the very depths of our heart. Lord, we long to go away from this place changed, increasingly conformed to the image of our blessed Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Sometimes it's a great blessing to have people who will just talk straight with you. Uh, if you uh, make your way to the dentist with a terrible uh, toothache, uh, one of the last things you want is for your dentist to uh, just enter into an extended conversation with you about what your vacation plans are uh, this uh, coming year and how the children are doing and uh, just to have a whole rundown of uh, your life or of his life even. Rather, you have a terrible toothache and you say, you're a dentist, please, let's get straight to the point. What can we do about this tooth that hurts? Well, James is a pastor addressing people who are in the midst of uh, great struggles. 
You may recall that James himself had been the pastor of, of the church in Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem had experienced extraordinary persecution at the hands of the Jews. They had been scattered, you remember. After the martyrdom of Stephen, there were Christians who were struggling through times of trial because of their faith. And James, the straight talker, wastes absolutely no time in his letter at getting right to this issue. And he addresses them as a good pastor would. He says, my brothers, my fellow Christians, my family in the Lord Jesus Christ, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, this particular pastoral situation wasn't something unique to uh, first century Christians but it's something which has particular relevance for God's people uh, today as well. And so let's take these straight words from James and consider what they would have to say to us as Christians living in the 21st century uh, today. We're going to look at this passage under three different headings. First of all, uh, we're going to see out of verse 2 a common experience, a common experience. Uh, secondly, out of verses 3 and 4, a divine purpose, a divine purpose. And then lastly, we're going to consider the very first words of verse 2, and we will see an important command. So a common experience, a divine purpose, and an important command. First of all, a common experience, and we find this in verse 2, when James speaks there about trials. What are trials? Well, trials are those experiences in our lives that uh, we weren't necessarily asking for or desire in our lives. There are things that we weren't planning on, and often they are difficulties or struggles. Now, James tells us a number of things about these trials that happen in the lives of Christians. He says, on the one hand, that these trials are certain. Notice he doesn't say, if you meet trials of various kinds, as if he's saying, well, perhaps, just possibly, this could be the experience that a few of you that I'm talking to might perhaps have some point in the future in your life. But no, he says, when. In other words, dear Christians, know this is coming. <laughs> it's certain when you meet trials. Well, the second thing that he tells us is not only are they certain, but that they are sudden. They are sudden. When you meet trials, the word for meet there is uh, really the word that uh, could be translated fall into. Uh, it's the same exact word that is used in the parable of uh, the good Samaritan when he fell into the hands of thieves. Now, the good uh, that... that uh, uh, that, that uh, man uh, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember the story, okay? Uh, he went out that day, he was traveling along uh, the road, and he didn't go out that day intending to be stripped of his clothing and to be wounded and to be left half dead. Uh, he didn't set up an appointment with that thief that he would meet him on the road, but rather it was just something that suddenly, in a moment, came upon him. Similarly, in our lives, none of us intend to experience trial. If I were to ask you, 
Well, what plans do you have for the year 2021? You wouldn't say, well, I've, um, I've begun to list all of the various trials that I would like to go through in this coming year, and I'm planning to, to at least hit eight or ten of them. No, you don't, you don't take that approach. None of us do. But rather, trials are those things that come upon us often very suddenly and unexpectedly. So trials are certain, they're sudden, but they're also diverse. You see those words when you meet trials of various kinds. And this teaches us that there isn't a one-size-fits-all to the trials that God brings into our lives. Many uh, that they come into, uh, that they come in all shapes and all sizes and all types. They last for all sorts of different durations and with different levels of severity. And in fact, we can often be experiencing uh, several different kinds of trials all at the same time in our own lives. For some of us, it may be that you are diagnosed with a, a chronic illness and there doesn't seem to be any solution to it. For others of you, it's the death of a spouse or a child that's been born, uh, perhaps with a, a birth defect and then dies at a very early age. Or perhaps it's that you lose your job and uh, you're struggling to make ends meet and you don't know where the next job may come from. It's not coming as you intended. Or perhaps it's that your home is burned to the ground with all of your belongings in it. But often the trials are things that are even much smaller than some of those big items that I've just mentioned. Uh, perhaps it's uh, your boss at work, never satisfied with any of your work. And once again, you've been unjustly yelled at. Or perhaps you are a parent and you have a young child that misbehaves continually and you are just at wit's end and you don't know what to do. Maybe you're a student at college. You need a certain class to graduate and to get your degree, but you just can't comprehend the material uh, that is being uh, presented. Or maybe it's that you've had friends that have turned against you, or perhaps a spouse that has said a harsh word to you, and it's one that you just can't forget about. And it's hard and difficult. Perhaps it's that you have a dear friend who seems to be depressed and it's affecting your relationship with that friend. Nothing seems to be the same as it once, as it once was. And dear friends, we could go just down and down the list if we wanted to. We could spend the rest of the time going around the room and uh, we could be describing some of the various trials or difficulties uh, that we are going through in our lives. And it's important, friends, that we recognize that James does not deny the reality of trials in the Christian's life. James, as well as many others throughout the scriptures, you could go through the Psalms, you could go into the description of the life of various Old Testament figures. You could go to Paul and to the epistles that he wrote. You could go to the teachings of Jesus. You could go to the book of First Peter. You could go on and on to the book of Revelation. There's another book yet. But all of these describe that the Christian life is one in which the reality of these kinds of trials will be 
there. So we can't say that the Bible is living in some kind of Pollyannish world where there's nothing ever wrong. When you go through trial, we ought not to say, well, this was totally unexpected. No, the Bible says you are going to experience, you're going to fall into trials of various kinds. And it's important that we recognize this, again, because for some people, going through a time of trial can be a real faith-shaking experience. And you know people, perhaps you've been tempted to do the same, that when trials come, the temptation is, is to distance yourself from God and to say, God, why would something like this ever come into my life? And you begin to stop attending church and stop reading your word. And you begin to question your faith. And you say, well, can Christianity be true if I'm going through the kinds of things that I'm going through? Well, dear friends, the Bible says that you're going to go through the kinds of things that you're going through. And so when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it was Christ himself who tells you that you're going to have this common experience of trials of various kinds. So it's a common experience. So that moves us secondly, though, into the important teaching of this passage. Not only does the passage tell us that we're going to experience trials, but secondly, it tells us about a divine purpose. A divine purpose. And we're going to see this in verses uh, 3 and 4. Verse 3 begins with a very important phrase. It says, For you know... What a wonderful little phrase that is, because it tells us that we can know, that is, we can be absolutely certain, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has these purposes that we're going to unfold in verses 3 and 4, but that God has these purposes in the midst of of trial. You see, when we experience trial, there are lots of things that we don't know. We don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, we don't know in what way or even if the trial is going to be resolved. It's going to be resolved in the way that we, that we would desire. It, from our perspective, there are lots of things that we don't know. But here James is saying there's something that you do know. And what you know is that God has a purpose for this trial, dear Christian, God has a purpose for this trial in your life. Well, what is that purpose? Well, that's what he goes on to explain. And there are really kind of three steps to his explanation of this uh, divine purpose. The first step is that he says, uh, this trial is to test your faith. It's to test your faith. For you know that the testing of your faith. That's what the trial is. It's a, it's a testing. Now the word that's used for testing here in James 3 is one that is used in reference to the purifying of silver or of gold. It's a word that is used once in the, uh, uh, in the Psalms, once in the Proverbs, in the Greek version of those Old Testaments, this word is used. And then as well, it's used in First Peter, First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, there say to us, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the 
tested, there it is, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here it, it compares the effects of trials in our life to the, to the way that a metal is tested, a precious metal. And in the testing of a precious metal, as the fires are turned up, what happens is that the dross, or those things that are not precious, uh, uh, are separated from the metal itself. It's a, it's a process of purification. And the Lord is saying that's what one of God's purposes in times of trial. It is to purify or to test, to prove our faith. Now, just to try to explain what, what this might look like, let me just um, let me just give you a, an account of a fictional uh, a fictional character. We'll call her Beth. Okay, Beth uh, is somebody who grew up in the church. She had Christian parents. Grew up in a sound gospel preaching church. She went to Sunday school and the services of the church as a child, and at a young age came to embrace the same faith that her parents had, made profession of faith, and owned this faith as, as her own. She was a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, Beth had a, a good desire uh, even um, to be married and to have a family when she grew up. Well, she met another uh, young man who also was a Christian, and uh, they dated for a period of time, became engaged, and got married, and she had exactly what it is that she wanted. Well, soon after their marriage, also just according to her desire, she becomes pregnant with her first child. They're going to have a baby. And this also is exactly what she had dreamed of from a, from a young age. And so she's going through the pregnancy, that she can feel the child begin to kick in her womb, and they begin to get the baby's room ready, and uh, everything is, is just according to plan until it isn't. Then one day, one of her doctor visits. Doctor says something's terribly wrong with this pregnancy. We're not sure if the baby is going to make it. And they bring her in, and soon she has to deliver the baby uh, early, very early. And they're unsure if the baby is going to make it. And the whole church is, is praying, and the baby dies doesn't make it. And suddenly Beth, who through so much of her life had things that went just in the way that she had desired, in the way that she had planned, and even had a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, was experiencing now a trial in the way that she never had before. Well, what's God's purpose in this trial? We can't list everything that our sovereign and good God is doing in this time. But surely he has some purposes with Beth. For example, Beth cries out to God with real tears in a way that she never had before. And even as something which she so desired, and it was a good desire to have this child, was taken away from her. She finds herself going to God and crying to him as she had never cried before. And there's something very real then about her, it becomes something very real about her faith. 
But in the midst of that, too, as she begins to think about her heart, she realizes uh, perhaps certain things that she had maybe held up even as idols. She realizes maybe the desire for a family, which is a good desire. Perhaps, though, was even a desire that she had put above her faith in the living God. And so her idol is becoming exposed. And as she examines her heart a little bit more, she sees that she's perhaps had some self-righteousness. She had thought through the years that, well, she couldn't understand why, well, or that she thought she knew why everybody else's life didn't go quite as smoothly as, as hers. Well, it was because she was a good, a good girl, and she had done things right, and that's why everything went fine. And, and that sense of self-righteousness kind of came crashing down upon her and that's a good thing and then also suddenly in the church even as she and her husband are grieving the death of this child what happens is that others in the church begin to talk to her people who had gone through very similar things themselves and she finds that she then receives the ministry of the church in a way that she never had before and she's drawn closer to the body of Christ. And even then, as the years pass later, she finds herself in a position able to sympathize with and to minister to others who are going through very similar things in their lives. Well, again, the fictional account that I've just given of Beth is one that would sound very familiar, probably. Uh, it's not exactly that trial, but trials that are similar to it. And what we see is the going through of a very difficult and painful experience, and it is painful, nonetheless can be an occasion of the testing, of the purifying, of the growing of a person's faith. And that's one of God's purposes. In times of trial, it is to test our faith. And he does it in all the ways that I just mentioned, in many ways that we perhaps don't even see and recognize, God is, through the variety of our trials, testing and purifying our faith. Well, what else is God doing? He goes on, James goes on, to say then that the Lord also is producing steadfastness. For he goes to say that the, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness now the word here for steadfastness it really indicates a a, a, um, a a continuing on or a pressing on under a burden or under a weight and the picture here is of one who is experiencing trial laid upon them and yet one who is continuing to press on to go on, to, to have a staying power, a fortitude, a faithfulness amidst those various trials. And, and we realize that it is when our faith is purified and we learn more and more what it is to truly depend upon God that we then are enabled to persevere through the various ups and downs of life. Because the Christian life, dear friends, is a long race and we're in it for the the long haul and it's only when we can keep our eyes focused upon jesus christ 
that we can continue on keeping on amidst every obstacle, obstacle and to produce fruit for his glory. And so James says that when our faith is tested, it leads us to be able to keep on keeping on in the Christian faith. To persevere. And, and friends, I hope you see what a wonderful thing it is whenever you see a fellow Christian persevering in the faith. It's not something we ought to take for granted. If you have somebody who's here that was also here 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago and still is confessing the same faith today that they did then and is continuing to grow in the faith today even as they did then, that is a wonderful, glorious accomplishment of God's saving power and grace. And one of God's purposes in our lives is to enable us to persevere. That's why he brings trials. And so we see trials to test our faith, trials to produce steadfastness. But then finally, what is God's purpose in trials? It is to lead us to maturity as well. It's to lead us to maturity. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, there James uses several different words to refer to the idea of Christian maturity. He wants steadfastness to have its full effect, that is to reach perfection, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Three different words that are all describing basically the same thing, and that is one who has reached a state of maturity in their Christian life. Now, James here is not referring to a kind of a sinlessness. James 3, 2 says that we all stumble in, every, in, in many ways. And the Bible itself recognizes that our struggle with sin is going to be here all the way through this life, and it's only in glory that we're going to be that perfected, sinless bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what James does recognize is there is something to a Christian maturity, a growing up in the faith, a growing up, a maturity that is reached only through steadfastness in the long haul, a constant daily walking with the Savior. You know, there are not shortcuts to maturity. Perhaps you sometimes wish that there were, but there just aren't. You know, a, a team, for example, just to use an illustration, a team that wants to win a championship wins that championship not merely by saying, you know, we'd like to go out and win a championship, but rather it's through what? It's through rigorous training. It's through, you know, if you're a football team, it's those rigorous two-a-days in, in August, in the August heat. It's spending time together, bonding as a team. It's overcoming periods of adversity when one player might go down injured and other players need to step up. And it's through continuing on in this over the long haul only, it's then that they're going to reach the championship, that they're going to become the mature team that they desire to be. And, uh, or, or to change the illustration, perhaps we'll think of a, of, a, of, a, 
of a child. How does a child reach maturity? Parents, does it happen in a snap of a finger? Don't we wish, huh? It was just like that. We just, and they're mature. They're adults. Responsible. Making decisions on their own. Making their way in the world. No, it doesn't happen that way, does it? It's, it's years of training. Hard training. Ups and downs. Adversity. And a child that's just coddled and always gets his way and is never told no and is never disciplined. Well, that child's never going to reach maturity. But rather, it's through the hard work of discipline and instruction and time spent over many years that causes that child to reach a mature adult, adult stage. Well, as it is for an athletic team, or as it is for a child who is growing it up, so it is for us as Christians also. Christian maturity is something that comes over the long haul. And often through many ups and downs and trials along the way. For in each of those trials, God is teaching us something. And he's forming and shaping our character and producing Christian graces in us that perhaps could be produced in no other way because he has this as, as the goal of it all, that we will reach, as James says, that we will be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And so here in James 3 and 4, we are given a little window into what some of God's purposes are in bringing trials into our lives. Now again, we don't know exactly why it is that he brings these specific trials into our lives that he does, but we do know that he does it in his wisdom for these ends, that it might test our faith and lead to steadfastness and bring about Christian maturity in us. Well, we've seen now a common experience. We've seen, uh, secondly, a divine purpose. But now thirdly and finally, I want us to consider an important command. Knowing these things, again, that key word in verse 3, knowing this about what God is doing, how are we to respond to days of trial. And James tells us, brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, what does he mean by this? <laughs> now, now, James is not saying that we ought to take some kind of um, perverse pleasure in our own suffering. We're not masochists, okay? We, we, uh, and in fact, the Bible tells us just the opposite, that the trials that we experience are grievous trials. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, okay, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Hebrews tells us that no discipline is pleasant at the time. <laughs> okay? And so when we grieve and feel the difficulty and the pain, the real pain of trials, dear friends, that's a perfectly biblically legitimate experience to feel. You have one who sympathizes with you in David, uh, in, in the Psalms. How many of the Psalms are filled with David's anguish of heart? 
He experiences trials of many kinds and pours out his heart before the Lord. So the Bible recognizes that there's real legitimate grief in the trials that we experience, okay? But what James is saying is that that's not the only emotion that we ought to feel, but even as it were through the grief and surrounding the pain and hurt and beneath it all, there is to be, as it were, a deeper and more foundational experience. And he says, you are to consider it all joy. And the word there, all, is that which refers to pure or unmixed or supreme joy. It's to be joy that we are to experience. Now, how is it that in our trials we are to experience a kind of joy? Well, James uses another important word here. You'll notice he says, count it all joy. We might say in some of your translations say, consider it all joy. And that word of considering or counting it is a word which uh, refers to, as it were, leading something before our minds. In other words, as we face our trials, we need to face them by thinking. That's crucial. That when we undergo trial, we need to think. And we need to think about it rightly and in particular, what we need to think about and to consider is what God is doing in the midst of this trial. So that though this trial hurts and is painful, the primary thing that we are remembering is that God has brought this into my life and he is working his good purposes in it for his glory and for my good. And that's the first thing that we think about. That's not how the world thinks about trials. In the world that we live in, it's a world that is filled with blame. It's always somebody else's fault. How did you do that to me? How could you treat me that way? How, and, and we get bitter. The world gets bitter at people and at God. People in the world, they get depressed and anxious. They get angry. We live in a world where people are filled with anger, anger at the things that are happening to them. And James is saying it needs to be different for that as Christians <laughs> because we know that God is the one who has sent this trial and he's working through it. He's, he's working through it for, for our good. And that makes all of the difference. And so when we consider it, we consider it as all joy, even amidst the pain, as joy, because we know that though there is pain, that God has a greater and more fundamental purpose in it all. And dear friends, when we ourselves can experience something of that joy of the Lord in the midst of our trials, we get to join that great company of saints who have experienced trials in the exact same way in times past. One thing, even in preparation for this sermon, I'm just so struck by the number of occasions that we have in our Bibles 
of real joy experienced amidst trial. In Acts chapter 5 and uh, verse 41, for example, uh, this was after uh, Peter and John were brought uh, before the Sanhedrin and then they uh, were released and were told that they left the presence of the council after being beaten and charged never to speak about Jesus Christ, that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Or Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, this is the account of uh, uh, Paul and Silas who had been wrongly imprisoned, imprisoned in uh, the city of Philippi, And when they get into prison, what are they doing? Are they holding the bars and shaking them and saying, we ought not to be in here? They're staging a protest. <laughs> no, what are they doing about midnight? Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And they realized something was different about these Christians. Something's different about them. Or Hebrews 10, 34, the writer to the Hebrews says that you took the spoiling of your goods joyfully. Romans 5, 3, Paul says we glory in tribulation. 2 Corinthians 7, 4, we are exceeding joyful in all our tribulations. 2 Corinthians 6, 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing 2 Corinthians 12.10. And this is the whole passage about the, the thorn in the flesh in which Paul desired after going through this trial that this would be taken from him. He asked God, take us from me. And that's an okay request. But God came back and told him, no, I'm not going to. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. It's a purifying of Paul's faith. But then after telling him that his grace is sufficient for him, Paul can say these remarkable words, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, when he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, Lord, if this is what you're doing, if you're going to teach me that your grace is sufficient for me, Lord, I'm content to go through whatever it is that you're going to bring me through. And perhaps the greatest example of such joy amidst trial is, of course, from none other than the Lord Jesus himself. And we find this in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, who for the joy set before him, we're told, the Lord Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated down, at, seated at the right hand of God. Was there ever one who experienced trial in his human life more than our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he did it with his eyes set upon the Father and experienced those things joyfully. So dear friends, can I call upon you in the midst of the trials that you will experience to consider what God himself is doing in it and then to rejoice in your God. And when you rejoice in your God, it is a testimony to the world around us that we have a source of joy 
that is outside of the mere circumstances of our lives. And when we talk to other people about what is going on and they say, how are you doing? You know, you have maybe non-Christian friends who rightly ask, how are you doing uh, with your parent that has just died or with the illness that you're, that you're going through or the, the hard time that you're experiencing? How are you making it? And rather than simply just saying, well, we're getting through, we're gritting our teeth, rather than just saying, oh, it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, could you say instead, well, my confidence through it all has been in a, a good God, my good God, who has faithfully ordered all of my ways and is using this for my good. And I believe that, and that's what's given me joy. A simple testimony like that can speak so loudly to the world. You want to know how to witness? Well, that's one way to witness to a world that is in darkness. And dear friends, what a wonderful thing it is to realize that we don't know exactly why God is bringing the trials that he is into our lives, but we know it is part of his wise and sovereign disposal. And can we say, Lord, if this is what it takes to make me look more like Jesus Christ, Lord, I can trust you with the things that you're bringing into my life, and I can rejoice. Let's bow together. Lord, our God, we thank you that you have a wonderful purpose amidst the trials of life. Lord, we, we think if we didn't have you in our lives, Lord, where would we be? <laughs> if we thought that things came into our lives by chance or by happenstance, or if it was simply the fault of others, or if we just thought that we were unlucky, Lord, what a desperately awful situation we would be in, hopeless. Lord, we thank you that amidst the various trials of life, we do have hope, and it is centered in you and in your purposes, and it enables us to rejoice. Lord, we pray for the grace that when trials come, that we would stop and think and count it all joy because of what you are doing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were encouraged by Rob's message and that you learned a little something about West Springfield. Please subscribe to Small Town Theologian on Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or your preferred platform so you don't miss future specials and regular shows. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate the show and leave an honest review to help give the show a boost. And tell a friend about Small Town Theologian. It's accessible all around the world. Till next time.